This is How to Read, brief conversations with brilliant minds. I'm Milan. And I'm Jess. Today we're talking to Nick Dames, an expert on the Victorian novel and the history of reading. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Pick up a novel today, and it's almost guaranteed to be divided up into chapters. But that hasn't always been the case. The chapter had to be invented. English professor Nick Dames has been studying this history. In this episode, he talks with us about how the chapter first came to be, and how writers have reinvented it over the centuries. Nicholas Dames, welcome. Thank you. Um, nice to be here. We're going to be talking about the chapter. So I'm curious where this idea started from. It's, so for me, it started in the question uh, posed to me by a non-academic friend. Uh, we were out for drinks one night. Uh, I, I remember where still. It was, oh, yeah. it was near Chelsea Piers. And uh, I was describing my work and the fact that I was working on, on novels to somebody who is not an academic. In fact, he was a, he's a theater director. Mm-hmm. So not even a, a particular reader of novels. Yeah. And he suddenly, out of the blue, said, so why, why do novels have chapters? Mm-hmm. And I was completely stunned by the question. <laughs> I Stunned that I had never thought about it, let alone had an answer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea when I started in on it how long the history was. So what's kind of the earliest point that you're tracing your history back to? You know, the answer that I have for this would actually be the the chaptering of scripture. These are texts that were not written in chaptered form, but were chaptered by subsequent editors. Mm-hmm. If you look at the history from the 5th century to the 13th, which is when the modern chaptering system was adopted, mm-hmm. you see uh, each successive system decreases the number of chapters and therefore increases the size yeah. of chapters. So, mm-hmm. so, I mean, some of the initial chapterings at Mark, the chapters would be two or three sentences long. Wow, okay. Um, that clearly is not the case mm. in our modern Bibles. Yeah. Um, but even, at least if memory serves, the chapters in Bibles today are still a lot shorter than typical chapters in novels, right? In the 19th century, but not until then. Okay. So an average chapter of something like uh, Mark or Matthew mm-hmm. is really not that far off from the norm of 18th century novelistic chapters. Yeah. Something like 1,500 words, 1,800 words. Mm. Uh, it's very common for chapters to be that length. Yeah. Um, it's certainly the case in Fielding. It's the case in Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. But it is true, by the time you get to the mid-19th century, those, that size has doubled yeah. Um, even a little bit more than doubled. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that is, but I, I am interested in this recurrent historical process by which the chapter form tends to get larger and larger and larger. So I guess we're moving on now to the novel and chapters, right? Um, is there a difference between 18th century and 19th century chapters in terms of kind of their function? I mean, does that change in length also mean other kinds of changes? I think that there are many changes. 18th century chapters tended to orient themselves around actions, um, mm-hmm. the beginnings, middles, and ends of an action. Mm-hmm. You know, in which uh, you know hero, Joseph Andrews, yeah. in which the hero encounters his love or something. You know, yeah. and once it's happened, mm-hmm. you know it's time to move on, right? 
19th century chapters tend not to do that anymore. They tend to sometimes encompass multiple scenes, mm-hmm. um, sometimes the actions of multiple days, and the chapter titles change. So we, we move to um, small elliptical tags. Mm. So a novelist like Anthony Trollope will have a chapter title that will simply be vulgarity. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a bit of a puzzle. You have to figure out. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a readerly game. What in this chapter is mm. vulgar? What, what is being said about vulgarity? Mm. The, the form becomes almost conceptual. The, the game mm-hmm. becomes something like, what binds all these different things together? What yeah. makes them a comprehensible chapter? I mean, I guess something like vulgarity is already suggesting that kind of category into which you then put a number of examples. Right, right, right. And I think the, for me, the twist there is that, and maybe this is um, a peculiar way to put it, it, it often seems as if 18th century characters are aware they're in a particular chapter, whereas 19th century characters could not be aware that they're in the chapter they're in. That is, no character in that Trollope novel is thinking, I'm in the moment of my life called vulgarity. Mm. Um, But the 18th century character is, I think, aware. This is the moment of my life that I'm in, or this is the thing that's going on with me. How do you see that awareness? Um, Often in a kind of of end-of-chapter self-reflection. So the character will assess the events that have just occurred Mm. as a way of kind of putting them behind them. You know, there's something reassuring about the sense that we're, we can feel chapter time. And, and, and I mean, we use that, we use that language quite often, right? I've I've had a therapist say to me, you know, so that chapter of your life is now over. Mm. And I, I thought, uh, Right. Yes, that's exactly. We, we think in those terms. The <laughs> yeah. time of my life when X was happening, you know, whether big or small. Um, well, you've anticipated one of my later <laughs> questions, but that's great. Um, uh, but yeah, um, so I'm curious what kinds of um, effect that th- these changes in chapters, maybe just to think about the 19th century, what what effects they have on readers, mm-hmm. um, or what kind of reading practices emerge out of that type new type of chapter Mm -hmm. to me that's the most interesting part Mm. of all of this and the most speculative right is is that chapters shape uh reading in a very uh, sort of material way one thing the chapter does is it provides you know a sort of permission from within the text to stop Mm. to to halt And, and and therefore giving you a kind of um freedom or the maybe permission's a better word yeah to uh, understand this text as piecemeal mm. and and not as a continuous experience. Yeah. You know, for most of for most of the 19th century and well into the 20th, right, that's seen as a kind of aesthetic flaw. You know, mm. our aesthetic experiences are most powerful when they are continuous in their impact. Unified, that's, coherent. Right. I think there's a lot of possibility, interesting possibility, in having an aesthetic experience that's actually intermittent yeah. and aerated to everyday experience so mm. that there's a bleeding of of let's call it real world experience with reading experience yeah. and a kind of implicit compare and contrast that begins to happen because mm. the form is intermittent yeah and because in fact the intermittency isn't your failure you know mm. to to sit there until it's over but in but in fact something the book is already telling you to do to it, yeah. it is letting you go i think that's really nice because we look at sort of big fat victorian novels on a shelf and think that they'd look kind of imposing but actually if there's something kind of built into it 
uh, the sort of much smaller form that makes it more manageable to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, at some point, uh, and I think a lot of modernism has to be blamed for this. At some point, there's a, you know, the, the discomfort with intermittent experience returns. What we ask of a, of a mm. book is to master us or to hold us and not let us go. Yeah. Um, which is odd because we have so many other cultural experiences which are accept intermittency. I mean, television is the obvious. Yeah, case I mean, there, right? I wanted to ask about that because it seems to me like I guess there are at least two ways that nowadays we think about watching TV. One is the kind of weekly episodic watching, and the mm. other is binge watching. Right. And right. when we think of sort of Victorian novel, 19th century novel, like I guess we only think about binge reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. don't think about parceling it out. Right. I, I I, mean, I think those two models are always in tension yeah. in culture. But I, I, the, I think we've lost a sense of the tension often, and what we have instead is a sense of hierarchy, that the, you know, the, the more overmastering the experience it is, the more important it must be. Mm. I'm really interested in recuperating the power of, intimis, uh, of intermittency in novels. Mm. And the specific odd affects that that produces i mean i'm you know as opposed to something like catharsis that would come from an experience that is totalizing and and uninterrupted Mm -hmm. i'm really interested in the way chapters sort of suspend action in novels and produce instead a kind of um a kind of almost like an unease uh, this thing has stopped, but it also is sort of continuing. Mm. It hasn't gone away. There's a kind of lingering quality that the, the ends of Victorian chapters often produce, where you sense that a certain episode may have concluded, but its effects will continue, and mm. you're going to have to live with the effects. Um, that's a different way of structuring time. Yeah. And it's a, maybe a lower intensity kind mm. of affect. Yeah. But it lasts in, yeah. in, a, in an interesting way and uh so it that, loses in intensity it gains in duration it, i think i think that yeah. seems right and yeah. i and i think that we often accord that a little bit less dignity yeah than maybe we should well since you um you mentioned the modernists as a kind of um enemy of of this tradition um it makes me think of joyce's ulysses right. and right. i think people sometimes talk about the sections of that as chapters, but nowhere is there any indication that they should be called chapters, and those don't have any kind of number. It's just like a new page. Mm-hmm. I, I, the way I think of it is that the early 20th century in particular did two things to the Victorian chapter mm. uh, without killing it off. The two things that tend to happen would be, one would be the Joycean model, uh-huh. where each chapter has its own technique, its mm-hmm. own perspective, um, it's, it's it, style. They're, yeah, they're, they become almost atomized. Mm-hmm. That is to take the chapter very, very seriously as uh, as almost like a text on its own, mm-hmm. or to so explode lots it. of little short texts. Right, right. Lots of little short texts with, with that are, that are almost walled off yeah. from each other, yeah. or to um, explode the bounds of it. Uh-huh. So you you know, I guess the contrary would be something like Proust. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapters that are hundreds of pages long, yeah. um, as if to really dissolve the chapter from entirely. Mm. So certain kind of subdivisions of a text are called chapter, right? Like they have the word chapter right. with a number, right. or they have a name, like, um, what was it, vulgarity? Yeah, yeah. Um, does it make a difference whether something is called a chapter or whether it just has a name? <laughs> um, or maybe... Yeah 
just has a number without the word chapter? Like, I mean, I, I, I think it does matter. When writers produce the unit without the heading, Mm. or with a, a minimalist heading, like a number, yeah. um, or often more minimalist than that, right? Just kind of white space on mm. the page. I, I, th- to me, I've read that as a, as a strange embarrassment with okay. segmentation, yeah. as if they acknowledge its importance, mm. but there's something, there's something almost kind of neo-Victorian to them about chapters, right? It's like putting on a corset. It, it feels, it's going to feel <laughs> uncomfortable. It'll feel... Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we should be free of that thing now. So what about other media besides the novels? So like, mm-hmm. I mean, we mentioned television. Um, so I'm right. wondering, you know, where do you see the chapter sort of filtering through into other <laughs> other media? Um, well, there's a the, the most recent Whit Stillman movie, Love and Friendship, which is an oh, attempt to do uh, Austin's yeah. uh, Lady Susan, right? Yeah. Um, and there are what seem like chapter title cards in mm, that film. Yeah. And when I was at when I went to see it, the chapter title cards made people giggle. Mm. And I was trying to understand why people giggled at those moments. There was nothing, you know, incredibly witty about the titles he was offering, but it was like just the sheer appearance of text. Yeah. And and it it struck me that what was making people giggle was the sense of something like authorial or directorial comment Mm. on the action that seems to me now one of the contributions that the chapter makes coming from the novel into media that don't necessarily have to come segmented to you know to take us out of of immersion yeah and and that is peculiar because you know now we're flooded with all these uh journalistic efforts to tell us that in fact what the novel does is it immerses us mm. and that's what it's good for that's what that's why it's good for us to read fiction because we're trained to be yeah. immersed in a way that other media don't yeah but it actually feels the reverse to me in many ways where the, the novelistic effect is to pull us out of immersion mm. um you know in the way that that those breaks do yeah uh, well I you think. were saying the 19th century even it was you know permission to stop and like in that sense, sort of come out of the fictional world. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so much thinking about the novel is too rooted in, um, this is going to sound odd to say, but it's too rooted in the actual act of reading and not rooted enough in thinking about that threshold moment when you put the book down mm. um, and the frequency with which that has to happen in yeah. a novel, right? You, you know, it, it, it's the thing that seems most unengaged with in the theory of fiction to me is the way in which it's it, it, it takes a lot of time, but it takes intermittent time. Yeah, and we don't think enough about what it means to to put it down, but have it still kind of lingering in our heads, because in some ways the ideal state for us is being lost in it. Yeah, but that of course is, uh, you know, it's it's I think only one aspect of what the form is asking us to do. Yeah. So if your life story was divided into chapters, which novelist's chapters would you want oh, it to be? Wow. Um, would it be Joyce's? Would it be Proust's? Would it be Victor? Would it be Trollope's? Oh, see, the the problem is, I don't think they. I, I would love to read a Trollopean novel about my own life, but I don't think I could produce it, because the problem <laughs> being that I can't know. I mean, the, the way the Trollope chapters work, it, they, they so escape the consciousness of anyone within them that I I couldn't know mm. what story I'm in. Mm. Um, 
So in some ways, the easiest version for me to write would be the Joycean version, right? Where each mm-hmm. chapter that I'm in would feel so self-contained and so different from the others, and each would have its own style and tone. And yeah. uh, that's that would seem to be the you know the one that I think I'm living. Yeah. But sometimes the Trilopian version seems like the one I'm actually living without really well, knowing maybe how. You or how maybe you know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I, I, no, exactly. Yeah. I, I couldn't possibly know. Okay. Well, Nick Thames, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Nick Dames, a professor in the English and Complet Department at Columbia University. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Nick Dames on the hidden rhythms of Middlemarch's chapters. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.